Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Hockey Journey Podcast, episode number 34, The Dr. Ryan Fader Hockey Journey, presented to you by OnlineHockeyTraining.com. I'm your host, Coach Lance Pitlick. If you're new here, please make sure you subscribe so you won't miss out on any future episodes. Before we pop the top off of this and start the conversation, if you want to learn more about me, my hockey experiences, what I know, and most importantly, how I've been helping hockey players get really good with a stick and puck, just head on over to OnlineHockeyTraining.com and gain instant access to my 10-part video series where I'll show you everything. Consider it my gift to you. Dr. Ryan Fader is my next guest, and I'm looking forward to hearing his journey as he's gotten some hockey sprinkled in there, but his true call to adventure is helping others, me being one of those people, as he fixed up my knee recently and coached his operational again. Unfortunately, every player is going to get dinged up from time to time, but we're lucky to have people like Dr. Fader to help us get back on the ice as quickly as possible. But what if the injuries are self-inflicted due to early specialization and overuse? Well, we're going to find out. This guy is a master at his craft, and I want to know how he got there. So ladies and gentlemen, please help me in welcoming Dr. Ryan Fader to the show. Doc, welcome to the Hockey Journey Podcast. Thank you, Lance. It's so great to be here. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah, this is going to be good. Um, you, I had a little bit of your handiwork done about a couple months ago, had a, some knee issues. You got me back to operational, so I appreciate that. We're going we're gonna to talk about that journey on you becoming uh, a world-class surgeon because that is uh, – there's a lot of work that goes involved in that. But before we do, uh, let's begin by doing a little time travel and go back to where it all started for you. Where'd you grow up? What was your childhood like? Your introduction to hockey and other sports? I guess give our listeners a snapshot of what it was like growing up, Ryan Fader. All right. Well, where do I begin? So I grew up in Wilmer, Minnesota, about two hours west of Minneapolis, St. Paul, small 20,000 person town. Um, in a very blue-collared family. I was the oldest of four four boys, and so I have three younger brothers, which were, you know, have, are now my best friends, and uh, were really really fun to grow up alongside. Um, you know, with sports and all being very enthusiastic about being athletic and obviously competing, and always having somebody to beat up on because as time uh, as time moved on, they all grew larger than taller than I was and stronger than I was. So I I had a small a small time lap time lapse there. I was able to uh, really take advantage of that, but. Um, yeah, raised in a very blue collared family. My dad owned a water conditioning business that he started out of our garage and, uh, mom was a hairstylist that turned into a stay at home mom. And, um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I just have really amazing memories of my childhood and growing up in Wilmer. Um, you know, my introduction to sports was largely led by my father who, you know, grew up playing hockey as well. I, I never you know, really played a ton of formalized, um, structured hockey for a team or anything, but, uh, it, you know, sometimes my mom would fill in here and there and I, I'll never forget. There was a, you know, back when I was a mite and I, I can, I can distinctly remember this moment. Now my mom took me to hockey one day because my dad was out of town and sent me out on the ice. And I thought things felt a little weird. And, um, it wasn't until about 10 minutes into skating that someone asked me where my breezers were that I <laughs> realized that my mom had dressed me uh, without my dad's help, without breezers, and sent me out on the ice. Um, but, you know, our, my love and passion for sports and, and for the game of hockey really grew and started 
on the outdoor rinks and in our driveway. I mean, we played, my, my dad was pretty handy with a welder and welded up a hockey net for us and uh, have just really, really incredible memories of just spending hours and hours and hours outside until mom turned on the light and we had to come in for, for bed and, you know, kind of clean up for the night where my brothers and I and a couple kids in the neighborhood would just be out there from literally snow melt, or not even fully snow melt until, uh, you know, the snow was really staying deep in the air. And then, you know, getting our hockey bags dropped off at the outdoor rink and we'd walk over to the rink after school and play for a couple hours. And then obviously that morphed into more formalized, uh, uh program hockey. So yeah, just really good memories, memories of, of my childhood and athletics growing up. So did you have a lot of outdoor pond hockey as well? Cause did you play organized hockey right away or was it more just unstructured with your buddies? No, I did. I, we did both. I mean, we started, I started in a, uh, in like the, you know, the termites and the mites program when I was, I don't know, three, four years old. I think I actually was on my first skates at like just under two years. Um, with some like double bladers at an outdoor rink, but yeah, we would just, we would just grind it out on the outdoor rinks, you know, whenever we weren't, even if, even if we had practice later on that night or earlier on in the day, we'd hit the outdoor rinks afterwards just because it was so much fun with the neighborhood kids and buddies to get out there and, you know, screw around and kind of develop some of those other, those other parts of the game and uh, that you're not doing necessarily at your, with your team. It's interesting too, because you, <laughs> I wonder what my childhood would have been like if it was today with the smartphone. You know, do you think you would be playing as much outside as you, you did when, you know, we were both kids? You know, it's, it's, uh, that's a, that's a hard question. I guess it's always hard to know what it would have been like then, but I do think that, yeah. and this is just purely observation, but I mean, I think it's a huge, huge distractor for sure. And probably does, does limit out. I think outdoor, if there's some, somewhat of an art, a lost art, you know, like now it's become like a novelty to go kind of skate outdoors. And, um, I think that obviously the game has completely evolved and watching, you know, I work with Minnetonka high school, watching that level of hockey now compared to like when I was playing high school hockey, which was not that long ago. I mean, it was 2003. So I guess that's almost 19 years ago now, I guess now that I say that it makes me feel super old. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. Like the, the skill level and, you know, where people are at. And I know that they just, they're, they're just playing so consistently and there's so many different developmental programs and different teams and playing year round and, you know, sports specialization that the game has really evolved. But I, I do think that, uh, maybe cell phones and other things have all kind of led to the dying art of outdoor hockey and, and the love for it. Yeah. It is. I mean, I, I just remember the same thing that my, I just remember my mom calling me in for supper from across the street. So as, as you got older, did you dream of playing college hockey or was that a secondary dream to becoming a doctor? You know, when, when did you having the serving others ignition, I guess? Yeah, I think, you know, I was almost probably flip-flopped. I think, um, <laughs> I kind of wanted to be a teacher, but I definitely wanted to play hockey and I wanted to play college hockey, um, had a, you know, a really fun high school career in Wilmer and, um, then went to St. John's university here in Minnesota and with the intent of playing hockey. And I think it was pretty quick, you know, in my, into my college hockey experience that I realized, Hey, 
you're probably not going to go super far with this. You're not going to play professional hockey. It's just not, you start to have those moments of realization where you realize that, Hey, yeah, you were pretty good in high school, but so is everybody else that's now out here. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I think that, you know, I, I would say that kind of into my freshman kind of sophomore year of college is where I started to realize after some shadowing experiences as well, that, you know, healthcare was something that I really wanted to be a part of. And I, I wasn't quite sure my identity in, in that field at that moment, but I just knew that I really liked sciences. I really liked helping people. And, you know, it was kind of, a, a, it was a, definitely a journey and a long process to get to where I am now, not, not even just logistically, but just cognitively, as far as figuring out my passion for what I wanted to do, how do you develop your skills? And then how, how can you apply that to help people? And so for me, you know, every step along the way, there was kind of a new challenge, a new decision point of what are you going to do next? Well, you know, it was going to medical school. And then, you know, once you get into medical school, it's like, well, where, what, you know, how, where do you want to be at within the field of medicine? And for me, I absolutely fell in love with orthopedic surgery simply because I'm a very, I I think it translates a lot to sports and there's a ton of athletes within the field because it's a very competitive field to get into. It's very competitive and feels like, I mean, today, even still five, six years into practice, it feels like my surgery days are my game days and my clinic days are my practice days where I'm studying and preparing and, you know, taking care of people in the clinic and um, kind of monitoring results and other things. Whereas surgery day, I've got a routine. I follow the exact same routine every single surgery day. I mentally prepare for my cases. I you know look at review imaging the night before and kind of go through my plan A, B, C, D, and uh, you know make sure I've got your checkdowns and everything that you do. And um, for me, it's almost feels as though I'm I'm living that career of being an athlete, but I'm doing it by helping athletes and by working with people and. Um, that has, you know, really been life changing for me. So you're you're telling. So let me just see if the because <laughs> hockey players are notorious for being just very routineish and ritual like. Uh, yeah. Putting on, you know, the first, right skate first, left skate whatever. So you do you Absolutely. have that same type of routine? Yes. I do. Yeah. From everything from, you know, how I wake up in the morning the order of the order of uh, me getting ready, the way I get ready, you know, how, you know, deodorant, shampoo, you know, all everything, like the order that those things are done. And it's not like I think about it at this point. I'm not like left hand, right hand, but it's just, it's very rhythmic and, uh, you know, getting my coffee ready as I'm grabbing and getting my bag ready and uh, packing my lunch. And I eat the same, you know, on surgery days, I eat the same thing. So it's, uh, recently morphed from from my one kid's gogurt tubes and a granola bar to now a protein bar and these superfood smoothies from my that I steal from my year and a half old um <laughs> but uh you know it is it very much feels just like getting ready you know for your game the way you tape your shin pads the order you do it and uh yeah that's it's a great analogy that's uh, that's awesome but then you know what are you doing you're that that's been a routine that you've had success with and you keep on modifying it and improving and adding and, uh, and that that's how you, you find your day where you're most productive yeah. and most happy. Awesome. Yeah. I tease my wife because, um, sometimes she'll, she'll get up early for something and I just tell her she has to stay out of my way cause she interferes with my mojo. 
kind of mixes up my routine <laughs> if even if she's just awake or having another human awake in the house. So. <laughs> yeah, well, we can yeah, that that's part of the old relationship deal. So, uh one of the reasons that I, I started this podcast is because I, I get in front of a lot of young aspiring players that want to, you know, they have lofty goals in hockey, but they also have uh, extremely lofty goals and what they want to do when, when their hockey's done, a number of them in, you know, in the medical field. So my wife also was uh, pre-med. She got all the way to uh, taking her MCATs, getting accepted to the University of Minnesota, and then I ended up making it to the the NHL got her pregnant and that stopped that whole operation. <laughs> so I got, a, I got an idea, but not a lot of people may, may not have an idea. You know, it's like you go to a concert, a famous pianist, let's say, and you see a great performance, but and you just think that they just appeared and you don't know the story of how much work that went into getting that. So just kind of take us through the steps uh, that a person like, just tell us your story. You know, you went to St. John's, you started your college, and you decide you want to go to medical school. Like from right there, what are all the things that you have to do? Because your training uh, started in Minnesota, but it also took you to Colorado and New York. Uh, and this was years that this whole process took. So give us a little snapshot of that as well. Yeah, I, I will definitely take that task on. I think. Um you know, as far as the advice goes, like you're, you're saying with a lot of the aspiring people, you know, athletes and academic athletes that you have for, for me, one thing that I feel like I now have at least based on my past and still probably have no idea of when, as it relates to the future, but it's just having perspective on the entire process. Like you mentioned the pianist that, you know, puts this beautiful masterpiece together. You know, it is, you can make the same analogy for, you know, music, you can make the same analogy for, you know, an NHL hockey player, um, even within the league in kind of the evolution of a player and the way that we all kind of evolve is it's, it's a long journey and a long process. And you have to focus on the now because it's overwhelming to think about how, how am I going to get there? Like how, how am I going to go from where I am today to where I want to be? And so having perspective on how big the process is, how long it may take, you know, you, you can work out the, the granularity of all the different phases along the way, but just having good perspective on where you are now, where you want to get to, and then, you know, just realizing that it's, it is a journey. So for me, you know, I, I continued my education at St. John's University, which is where I um, started to get interested in medicine and took more of a science heavy, uh, you know, um, workload. And I, I will preface this by saying, we did those career aptitude tests in, um, in ninth grade in high school. And I told yeah. my, my career counselor at that time, after taking that test, that I wanted to be a sports doctor. And I don't know how, I don't, I don't know where that came from in that very moment, but I just, it has just felt very original. And that's what I told him I wanted to be. And he, he kind of laughed at me and he said, <laughs> Well, you, your number one, your number one occupation based on this test is that you want to be a butcher, and that's about a fourteen-year road to become a sports doctor. So I'm not sure that it's really in the cards for you. <laughs> so oh, that that kind of hung through, though. 
it is, it is honestly, it was so motivating hearing that. Um, and I, I think that that theme rings true throughout my life and career. Like when I'm told, like I told you, I love being an underdog. And I, I think that for me, that's just really what motivates me. Um, but when I went to college at St. John's and started the sciences, I found them super challenging, which again was super motivating and, you know, attractive to me because I love, I love just hard work and love having a challenge. And so it was really something that I could work towards. And then, you know, the, the next goal then is, Hey, you need to get good grades and you need to get a, have a good MCAT score so that you can get into medical school. And so that was kind of my, you know, two year goal or three year goal was to, focus on the now with, you know, knowing that short-term goal. And once I got into medical school, which, um, I was between actually, let me interrupt you. The, the MCATs, just go over that because that, that's not even close to what like an ACT test is, is it? I mean, it's like on steroids. Yeah, it's a very challenging test. And I actually took it twice. I had the first time, um, the first time I took it, I, I, I would say underprepared and I probably only studied about three months for it. Um, and I, that was a full summer every day that I, that I dedicated to that. And I, I scored an okay score, you know, it was kind of on the lower end of where I wanted to be. So the, the next summer I again dedicated, I worked, but I also moved to St. Cloud, Minnesota to take like a prep class at, at, at St. Cloud state and, uh, really focused and, and hammered it down. And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it's an eight hour long test, like the, a lot of these standardized tests, but it's just on another level with regards to, uh, the questions and the amount of preparation that's required because it's not just basic questions that require, you know, logic. It really requires you having a background in a lot of sciences and, and other things and reading comprehension and all sorts of things. So yeah, it was a, it was definitely a hurdle. That's for sure. Okay. Thanks for explaining that. Go on. <laughs> so once I, once I got into medical school, I also, um, I was a German minor. And so I, um, was considering, I, I, I applied for a Fulbright scholarship and not expecting I would get it. And I, I actually got it, um, to go move to Austria for, um, for a year and ultimately made the decision to move on to medical school. And so passed up that opportunity and went the next week, the medical school told me I could, I could, uh, defer my, 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 um, acceptance for a year. So I guess I kind of missed that opportunity, but, um, you know, I feel like a lot of, uh, the butterfly effect has worked out for me. So I, I went to medical school and that's kind of where my passion for orthopedics and, and helping athletes really grew. And, um, you know, the next hurdle then is prepare yourself to become, you know, an orthopedic surgeon and get into, get into an orthopedic residency being competitive as it was. So, you know, really had to do well in medical school and, and get good letters of recommendation and do some volunteer experience and other things to really round out my application. And I did a, a, a six week commitment out in Colorado and really hit it off well with the department out there and the surgeons there. And, um, you undergo this, you, have you heard of the match process, Lance? The match process? The, the match process. Yeah. So it's this, it's this really unique process that's unique to medicine where you basically rank all the programs, the order that you want to go to them. And then they rank all of the applicants. So, you know, they get, they get about 600 applications. They accept about 60 for interviews for six spots. And so it's always like a 10%. You're always battling against the 10% all through, I feel like the medicine career. So I matched in Colorado, which means that they ranked me and I ranked them. 
and spent five years there, you know, doing rotating through spine surgery, hand surgery, pediatric orthopedic surgery, sports surgery, all the uh, subspecialties. And, and, uh, so then my next hurdle was, well, what kind of orthopedic surgeon do I want to be? And that's where, you know, sports surgery entered the picture or arthroscopic surgery and, uh, had to go through the same match process again and ended up out at, um, in New York city at a place called hospital for special surgery, which is the corn it's Cornell for all intents and purposes, but it's kind of a standalone orthopedic program in hospital. And that's what led me to the Rangers, New York Rangers experience and back to Minnesota. So how does, uh, and that, that whole period of time took like 12 years, something like that. So four years at St. John's, four years at the University of Minnesota Medical School, five years University of Colorado for my orthopedic training, and then one year at a uh, hospital for special surgery. So yeah, I guess uh, 14. All right. Yeah. You got yourself a career going. <laughs> <laughs> and, and still hardly made a paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh couple things I want you to discuss. One is, is when, when you're going through your residency, is that like a uh, boot camp where they're, they're trying to weed out the week in that? Yeah, it's, it's a really weird, it's a really weird experience. Um, and I, I can, you know, this, the, for sure of the entire journey, residency was hands down the absolute hardest part of the entire journey. And so that's five years, you know, really where you're dedicated to, they're turning you from a academic, you know, medical student into a surgeon. And so, um, you know, you I, routinely for five years, I would, uh, I would go multiple days without sleeping. I would work on average, you know, about a hundred to 110 hours a week. And, you know, on those nights that I wasn't sleeping, that I would be working all day, stay up all night, and then work the next day. On those nights, you'd be literally in the emergency department or the or the operating room managing gunshot wounds, car accidents, you know, with bones sticking out, people falling off cliffs, people hit by cars, um, you know, more basic trauma, people, uh, grandma falling and breaking her hip, you know, et cetera. And it was incredibly, um, it really, it really tests your resilience. Um, and I think that that is uh, of the entire journey. That is for sure where you feel the most out of your element. And I, I feel like some of that toughness that you build as a hockey player, um, really helped me a lot. And, um, just, just being tough, being mentally tough, you know, trying to stay, trying to stay structured, trying to stay, uh, on top of things at all time, all times, managing things, just trying to be prepared. And it was a journey for sure. It was very tough. I pull a groin just thinking about that. Anything that's uncomfortable, I pull a groin. <laughs> yeah. It gives me, it gives me a rash. It gives me a rash just talking about it. You can't see it through the phone, but. So you're, you're completely exhausted. Uh, how do you, how do you get used to the blood and guts and that stuff. And just, is there a class for that or that just develops over time where you're <laughs> immune to it? You just, you don't even have time to think about it or feel you honestly don't have a, you don't, you do not have time to feel and it becomes just completely second nature. It's, it's weird because um, I think that 
you know, surgeons especially, but all physicians, there's, there's this thought that like you kind of have like a weird empathy because you, you sometimes lose your, you, you, you turn, you learn this ability to kind of turn off your feelings almost in a way because you know, you're doing something to help somebody or for somebody. And so you have to put that ahead of your own. And so sometimes I'm guilty of this myself. And I think that, you know, like you mentioned the relationship aspect, you know, things like it's hard in, in, in a marriage or relationship even because you really have to be mindful of being empathetic sometimes because your medical training just, it, um, it programs you. And so you can't always be feeling all the feels and still do, do your job well, because otherwise it affects your, you know, mental clarity or your focus, your ability to kind of execute what you need to do in that moment. And the analogy that I'd make for you and probably your career is like playing in the NHL, playing in a really, really high profile game, or you're in a, you know, you're down by a goal, whatever, like whatever the situation is, there's, there are high stress situations and you don't have time to feel nervous. You don't have time to kind of think about the logistics of what's actually about to happen. You just have to do And so I think that that is something that just develops. Sniper's Edge Hockey is your one-stop shop for your at-home hockey training needs on and off the ice. Find the perfect start to your at-home training area with slick tiles, synthetic ice, or a rink liner. Or upgrade your home setup with one of our top quality training tools to help you work on soft hands, all of your deeks and dangles, perfect your one-timer, and improve the power and accuracy of your shot. Find it all online and in stock for immediate shipping at snipersedgehockey.com. So off of that, my, when my wife was pursuing that, she did her internship uh, in Hershey, Pennsylvania at some hospital when I was playing there. Uh, and I remember having nose surgery. So she asked the doctor if she'd come in and watch and they started pulling the packing out and the doctor, I hear him, you know, I can't see cause my eyes are all watery, but you can see my wife kind of swaying a little bit of shadow. And then he just completely stops and goes and grabs her cause she was uh, about to faint, almost fainted. Uh, so do you have, yeah. do you have, can you still turn that switch off if it's a family member or do doctors don't even t- you know, deal with their family members? <laughs> That's a, I, so I've never operated on a family member, but I have had some, uh, well, two, two points. One, I have fainted at, at multiple points in my career, not, not as a established surgeon, but when I was an undergrad student, you know, shadowing in medicine, the first time that I smelt cautery, which is what, you know, when you burn this, you basically use a electrocautery to basically yeah. stop bleeding or, or cut through tissue. Yeah. The first time I smelt that was during a C-section and I went, I was, I think a junior in college, I went straight down. <laughs> um, the second time I was shadowing a plastic surgeon and we were cutting a rock out of someone's hand that had been in there for a couple of years, like from some road rash, like a motorcycle accident. Huh. Huh. Same thing, just felt woozy, hot, went straight down. Um, but uh, your question was, about turning can you re, sorry can you repeat the question again well just tell like my wife because she told after she came to she said to the doctor that you know i can deal with it with you know i can turn it off seeing someone in pain or whatever's going on if it's a non-family member but if it's a family member you know it, it affects her differently yeah i um the only experiences that i have you know with people really close to me i've operated on a buddy 
my buddy's wife, who's a very good friend of mine. I did her hip surgery and it was not even a, a thought, uh, you know, at all. I was there to, for one job and, and I uh, got the job done. And then, um, my wife's C-section, I was, I was in on obviously, and looking over the drapes and kind of watching. And I would say it gave me a little bit of a funny feel in my gut, but it wasn't uh, super emotional or, or whatnot. And then just, <laughs> just two weeks ago, a buddy of mine cut his hand open and cut through his tendon on his finger, hauling out, a, hauling out a, uh, a toilet, like a ceramic toilet that had broke, shattered, and a piece had cut his hand. And so he called me from the emergency department. I just had him meet me at my office. And I, I um, just him and I, I did surgery in the office in, on his hand and repaired his tendon and closed the wound, you know, right there at the bedside in, in clinic on a Saturday evening at like six o'clock a couple weeks ago. Oh, no. That's he, it was all, uh, I had things under control and things were great, but then the point came where, um, I needed an assistant. And so I, he wasn't asleep. I just had numbed up his hand. And so I said, Hey, Greg, I need you to grab this. Uh, I need you to grab this retractor and, and pull hard <laughs> and hold the skin out of the way. And he, uh, he just about went down himself, but I, I didn't, uh, I did not feel, I did not feel fuzzy in that moment at all. Yeah, well, like you said, you what, what needs to be done now, and it's usually helping someone else. So you focus on that, and stuff gets done. So I'm a, I've had nine surgeries. You were number nine for me. Um, not once has any doctor came in and said, "Hey, Lance, I just want you to know that you're my first ever surgery." <laughs> you know that disclaimer. <laughs> uh, I. Talk about that moment. I mean, I know I remember my first NHL game. Was that a, a special moment for you where you had the lead on it? And, you know, talk about how to get to, to where you're – they're like, all right, he's ready. Yeah, that is that is the question that I've gone before. And, um, you know, it's such a process with the way that the in the United States that healthcare training is set up and surgical training is set up where you, you – the saying is see one – do one, teach one, but you know, you're, you're always kind of in the operating room as a medical student, just, you know, holding retractors or watching, and then you become a resident and then you're doing more retraction and kind of exposing for the surgeon to do what they need to do. And then they start to let you do little parts of the surgery. And then they start to walk you through the surgery. And then, you know, for some easier surgeries and more, uh, technically, you know, uh, simple surgeries, they, they kind of let you to take care of those while they observe. And then, it's kind of this evolution, but I'll tell you, nothing really prepares you for when you are, you've, you know, I, I feel very good about my training and had an amazing medical training at Colorado. I loved my surgical training at uh, HSS and, um, you know, that very first case that I did here in Minneapolis, I'll never forget it because I, you know, had prepared the night before for solid three, four hours, you know, I'd been looking at it all week long, kind of eyeing it down and what I was going to do and for sure overthinking it probably. Um, but, uh, show up to the operating room, patient goes to sleep, you know, you start to feel your heart rate picking up a little bit here cause you're, you're the one that's in charge. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, now this patient's life's in your hands. And so we get the patient on the bed and there were, um, you know, we have to position the bed kind of put it at the right height and tilt it and everything the way I wanted it because it was a hip, an arthroscopic hip surgery. And so you pull, you apply traction to the leg for that surgery for about, well, it depends on the surgeon and how fast they are, but, um, you know, 
put the bed in that position and the bed doesn't work and the patient's asleep on it. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me right now. I'm like, I feel like I'm like, you know, you're going out, you're going out on the ice and, uh, you know, the lights turn off in the building or something like this, or your skate breaks, you know, it's like, what do you do? <laughs> so yeah. very calmly, you know, internally for sure was very high strong, um, but was very ex- externally, very calm about it and asked for them to get a new bed. And then we safely transferred the patient to sleep onto the other bed, you know, uh, with extra help in the operating room and got the bed working and, and, uh, moved through the surgery and everything went well. And afterwards I just had this moment of just huge confidence, not like, uh, not in an arrogant way by any means, but just like really proud of like, wow, you know, you worked your way, not only through your first surgery, but also a couple challenges and, I just felt like things were kind of uh, coming to fruition after so many years of just envisioning this and practicing and just putting all the little pieces together until you finally have to put the puzzle together. And then it just begins. How many surgeries have you done now? Well, you know, I, I don't honestly don't even know. I, I, I think last year I did a right around 450 surgeries, um, like 200 and one of them were, just one surgery, hip arthroscopy, which is what I do a lot of, and for sure my highest hockey player clientele because it's just it's a very common problem in in uh, hockey players based on just the demands on our hips. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say that since being in practice, I would say roughly sixteen or seventeen hundred surgeries, probably in the last four or five years. Wow, that's unreal. So, like I did four today. I usually do anywhere from like four to six cases a day and then uh, operate two to three days a week. So it really depends on because, you know, sometimes they're real big surgeries that take two, three hours for my complex knee stuff. And then some of my hips are about an hour and a half. Some of my knees quicker, like 15 to 20 minute surgery. So it just kind of depends on what needs to be done. Yeah. So let's switch gears here for a second you talked about injuries that happen with hockey players and they they happen in games uh once in a while but there seems to be a trend you're seeing in young athletes hockey players included where they're getting hurt but not from blocking a shot or taking an unsuspecting hit what are you seeing in uh, young athletes nowadays well i you know i think that I, I guess I don't have any concrete numbers to go off of as it relates to acute injuries. And, you know, the, obviously safety of the game has changed and what's allowed and what not, what's not allowed. And um, I think that those injuries, there's really, <clears throat> they're somewhat unavoidable, right? They're just part of playing the game and, and being out there and the risk that you assume. The things that we see more frequently, though, now are some of these potentially avoidable um, injuries and problems as it relates to kind of overuse injuries. And, some of them are just developmental as well. So what I was referencing is a condition known as hip impingement or labral tear in the hip. They go hand in hand. And so basically what it is is the ball and the socket just don't fit perfectly together. And it causes a pinching or a damage to the cartilage or the bumper to the hip joint, which is the labrum. And that can cause groin pain. And so what used to be known as, you know, groin pulls or groin strains and recurrent groin strains or groin pain is truly an underlying structural problem. And what we think the cause of that is, is multifactorial, one being some genetics, but two being 
young hockey players being in like a crouch position. The classic is a butterfly goaltender yeah. where they're, where they're crouched down and they're kind of internally rotating or touching their knees together. And that leads to kind of a, uh, a response at the growth plate in the hip joint as the bones and bones are forming. And it, that's how we can develop these bumps called cam lesions. And so, um, that, uh, you know, that's a very common problem that we see in hockey players. And we call it, was that we actually call it a hot, the hockey hip, you know, where, where we see these goaltenders or other skaters come in and I've seen it in everything from, you know, 13, 14 year old hockey players to, you know, some of my very own college and professional hockey players that just have really bad hips. And they, and the problem with it is that it can lead to arthritis at a very young age. And so, you know, we have to be aware of it doesn't always need surgery and it doesn't always need surgery right now. I mean, sometimes we wait till the end of the season or we wait till their bones are done forming and it really depends on a variety of factors, but that's a really common injury that I see. So some, like you said, some are genetically prone to, to have these type of injuries. I think I was too, because I was uh, plagued with midline problems my whole career. Uh, I've had a hip surgery as well. That's one of the deals, but, um, you know, when you got a young kid, I, I watched a video that uh, you were commenting on. There was a, a girl runner, I think she was 15, and had all sorts of problems. But really, you know, she was living her passion, chasing her dream. And the word extreme comes to mind. You know, you live it, things, but things get out of balance. Uh, but the one thing, it, it, it just consumes you. What happens when you have a kid that's really passionate, that knows what she wants or he wants, does well in school, treats people respectfully, has all the different making, different make, difference maker traits uh, of a high achiever? How do you tell that kid to tap the brakes? Is there anything that can be done to prevent you know some of this stuff with these kids at such a young age? Well, I think two things. So I, I think one is just knowledge and awareness. And so, um, you know, making sure that you, if you have, if you have something going on that you're feeling, um, that you let somebody know, and then, you know, you see somebody that's knowledgeable on that topic. So it's, you know, so it's identified like this hip condition on average, the people that I see have, you know, have seen two to three different people and misdiagnosed two to three different times and have had symptoms for two plus years. And so, I think just awareness of, of that, some being body aware is really important. Um, the, the second part of that is I don't know that it's necessarily tapping the brakes and that's not usually the advice I give. It's more, um, it's, it's more about, uh, cross training and making sure that you're doing the other things to keep the other parts of your body healthy and you know, strong and keep your movement patterns good so that you're not, you know, just overusing something. If you drive, you know, a car on one road that's bumpy at the same speed all the time, you know, it's probably not as good for that car, car and the tires as it would be, you know, for cross training and, and being on different roads or different surfaces at different speeds. And it just has to do with overuse. And so I really advocate for that in our athletes and we do a ton of it in injury prevention with our Tonka athletes, but you're right. I mean, some kids just, they're built different and, and they're super passionate. And I think that that should be harnessed and that should be promoted but it's just, there are times that you do have to tap the brakes i um i just got done today pulling the pulling hardware a plate and screws out of a hockey player young female hockey player who uh is very destined to have a, a, a nice hockey career and 
we uh, we fixed her ankle because it was broken, and she played in the state hockey tournament championship game five weeks later with a, with you know with the plate and screws in her ankle. Um, and that's wow. just I think that that's that's another that's another level when it comes to athletes and just kind of that the the mental toughness. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty cool. Um, well, thank you for shedding some light on that. Um, you know, it's it's something that no one wants to talk about, but you know, the overuse thing is 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 one thing. The specialization early is another thing, but uh, balance is what I'm hearing. I mean, it, it, hockey players are notorious for having overdeveloped quads and underdeveloped hands to hamstrings. Um, so you're talking about having a balanced, uh, lifestyle where you're, you know, you don't have to play organized sports, but make sure you're working on the something else besides the one thing that you do mostly. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's well summarized. Just balance. And if you are going to be playing one sport, which I know there's more and more of a trend of that is just, uh, making sure you're doing the other things, making sure that you're you know, working out, working other muscle groups in the gym, making sure you're kicking around a soccer ball or going to play tennis every now and then, or, or whatever, whatever you, whatever it is that you enjoy. But I just think that balance is key. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Great messaging. Love it. Okay. So what's regarded as the Connor McDavid in the medical field, uh, where all the doctors in the world say, uh, yeah, that's next level. Cause you seem to be pretty competitive. You know, what, what's that? Who's that person? That's a, that's a tough question because there are just so many subspecialties. Like it, the, the field of medicine, like sports has just become so, so, so subspecialized. And so I would say that within every niche of medicine, you know, you've got a couple of all-stars that are Connor, the Connor McDavid's. Um, and there's definitely different generations. And I think that, you know, who may have been the Connor McDavid, you know, 20 years ago is now kind of uh, the Wayne Gretzky. And, you know, there's someone, there's, there's always, there's always somebody new up and coming. And I think that one of my mentors actually in New York actually had a painting in his office of a, of two lions in the, uh, in the wild. It wasn't a painting actually. It was a, it was a, uh, it was a photograph actually. And it was this younger lion just destroying this old, mature male lion. And it was his reminder that, that there's always somebody that's going to be coming after you and younger and, and to kind of motivate him to stay fresh and to stay working hard and motivated. So for me, I think I have kind of the Connor McDavid that, you know, that I see as Connor McDavid in my life. And that would be uh, Brian Kelly, who um, is who I trained under and learned a lot about life and you know, being a surgeon, being a, being a father as a surgeon, um, and, uh, the kind of the real nitty gritty on hip arthroscopy, which is my passion. Um, you know, and he's done it all. Like he's, he's been everywhere, knows everyone, published everything. Um, still is just very, very much excels at what he does. And, um, he's also who I worked with, you know, who I worked alongside or underneath with the New York Rangers. And so, I just really admire his, his work ethic. And he's also comes from a very blue collared background and really took me in during my time out in New York. So, and I think that that would be undisputed as one of the top, he'd be one of the top hip arthroscopists. That's where all the, you know, most of the NHL guys go to. And, um, he's operating on a number of those guys while I was there with them as well. So 
he's my Connor McDavid probably. That's awesome. But it, again, here, here's another person that came into your life. Uh, the first one was that I think it was your ninth grade. You did the career placement deal and he, he said, uh, good luck with that one kid. And now you got this guy who uh, just mentored the crap out of you. And it's, it's interesting how certain people intersect into your life at just the right moment, isn't it? It's wild. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it truly happens when you aren't always seeking it out. It just, it kind of things fall into a place and for whatever reason, motivate you or strike you or push you down a certain path. And sometimes it's completely unconscious. Tell me what the proudest moment you've had as a doctor. Wow. I, I think that would have to be uh probably that's probably a series of events um i it could it'd be really hard for me to uh list one exact moment that was my proudest moment but i think that you know some of them would be they, they're all kind of hit on different levels and so you know i um i was actually in colorado during the aurora theater shootings which was absolutely not a great memory right. but being present and helping out in the emergency department when, you know, 20 plus people are getting dumped off with gunshot wounds and just immediately taking action and helping people. And some of the relationships I built with those families, I think was, it, it very much sticks with me as a, as a very pivotal moment in my career, even though, you know, trauma, trauma isn't really a lot of what I do anymore, but, um, you know, that, that was one moment. I would say that the moment that I referenced my first surgery where I kind of worked through that challenging moment, um, was another huge moment for me. And I would say that collectively, every time I get an athlete back to what they love to do at or better than the level that they were doing it before is 100%. A, it's a huge feather in my cap. I just, I love seeing that. That's awesome. So you mean to tell me, I mean, you're, you're an orthopedic, you're a knee hip guy. When you were in Vegas for that, you were performing surgeries to save lives. Yeah. You, it was actually at the university of Colorado. It was the, Aurora Colorado, theater shooting, where the, uh, the movie theater. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that night I was on, uh, um, you know, I was coming into call the next morning. And so I came in to this absolute madness with my buddy. And we were just kind of in the trenches, literally with a marker marking people's arms and kind of in the order that they needed to be taken care of and spent two and a half days straight at the hospital, literally straight <laughs> at the hospital, just uh, operating over and over and over. And then, you know, a lot of them had to be taken back. Um, and we we're doing surgeries with the other teams because you know, there were, whether there are gunshots in the legs or there are issues with their gut or, um, you know, other parts of their bodies that need to be managed by other surgeons. So it was, it was very intense, a very, very intense moment and probably the ultimate shut off of, of what was actually happening and, uh, just taking care of what needed to be done. Wow. I, I, I imagine, you know, situation events like that would be similar to what would be wartime triage or, you know, medical stuff where it's just insanity. It absolutely felt like that. I mean, it literally felt like it was, um, <clears throat> it didn't feel like the same environment, even though it was the same place we came to do our job every day. It felt, it felt very different. Yeah. So I, I read some things on you. Uh, 
you are kind of an extreme sport guy, at least you were. So two words, adrenaline junkie, are you still feeding that beast? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have to be a little bit more thoughtful about it nowadays because I have more on the line with uh, my beautiful wife and two children. But, you know, I, um, I'd mentioned my water skiing experiences. And so, you know, for me, that was barefoot water skiing, both front and backwards, learning how to you know ski and water ski shows and transitioning into jumping and freestyle jumping over people and around people. And um, I don't still, I do not still ski with a team competitively in shows, but I, uh, I do still, we have a ski boat out on Lake Minnewashta in the West Metro. And so still get out and hit the ski course and barefoot. And when I'm home, I usually do a, a guest appearance at, at the show and we'll hit the jump and, and ski in the show with them for a show or two. So I still love, I still love the little bit of a, you know, something that gets me just a little bit nervous and gets my heart rate up, just get that little bit of thrill. Uh, I still definitely seek that. I don't get it, like barefoot or even wake uh, boarding. The only way to get good at that is to have just thousands of crashes. I mean, to get to where you're performing in shows, you've had to bid it a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's for sure a craft, and um, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, there, I've eaten the water a lot of times and had neck pain a lot of different times just from kind of learning – learning new things and you get your, you get off balance or tweak something just a little bit and you go down, but it's all kind of part of the process. I, it's hard. It's been really hard for me to give it up. Yeah. <laughs> but kids and kids and family, you know, you start whittling things away because you got to focus on them. All right. I got a couple more questions and I'm going to let you go. Um, I can't remember if it was the book, the talent code or outliers, but there was a, Something someone did a study uh, on the world's fastest sprinters, uh, just to see if there were any commonalities. And one thing that they found was that out of all of them, none of them were the firstborn. So, Doc, sometimes things just pop into my head. So I go, "All right, that's a you know a later born deal." What's some uh, firstborn? What do they tend to be? Uh, <laughs> what's some characteristics? So here's what I found that firstborns, which you are, you're the oldest of four boys. Uh, you're reliable, you're conscientious, uh, structured, cautious, controlling, and are achievers. Does that describe you? Sounds like it. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I would, I would say all those, all those things are very accurate. Yeah, it is. It is actually very amazing. Um, and I, I, you're, I mean, I think I, I agree with that. I, I very much believe in kind of the birth order and some of the personality traits assigned, assigned and, um, which, you know, has some probably downstream consequences or impact on your life and where you end up or how you do or what you end up doing. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. I got one more question for you and then we're going to wrap it up. Have you ever heard of a guy named Rick Swenson? The name sounds familiar, but it's not its not ringing a bell. All right. He just happens to be a retired American dog musher who was the first to win the 1,049-mile Iterid Trail Sled Dog Race across Alaska five <laughs> times, a record he held for 30 years. And where was he from, did you ask? 
Wilmer, Minnesota. <laughs> no way. Yeah, I, 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 uh, yeah, well, I typed it in just to see the most famous people that come out of uh, Wilmer. Unfortunately, you're not on the list yet. But this was one of the guys. I thought it was a cool <laughs> thing to to <laughs> bring to the show. Yeah, that's awesome. I wonder if um, I mean, there's a lot of Swensons in the area, but I wonder if um, there's a Swenson. Uh, there was a car dealership that used to be Swenson in town, and there's I think there was a funeral home as well. So that's interesting. I have to I'll have to look more into that. Yeah. So, anyways, well, hey, I I can't ta- thank you enough for being on the on the show. Really important part of the the hockey journey, you know, is having people like you when we get dinged up to be able to get back to to playing and loving the game again because, you know, when you're hurt, it <laughs> it feels like you're on an island of misfit toys or, you know, players, but uh congratulations on a great career. Uh and one other question is there is there anything that you're uh looking you know is there another peak that you're trying to get to or are you where you want to be no i'm definitely not where i want to be i mean i'm very happy with where i am but i i want to continue to evolve continue to be better as a surgeon uh helping more people and i still have some uh some sporting aspirations and then you know, personally, obviously, just always trying to be a better, better dad, better husband, better friend for for people. So I, I definitely want to continue to to do more. I'm hungry. Good. Well, keep rocking it because uh, I'm the proof is in the pudding. Coach is operational only because of you. So thank you very much. Um, again, congratulations. Thank you for for all you do. If there's anything that I can help uh, you. Uh, with down the road please don't hesitate to ask and also thank your wife Caitlin and son Owen and daughter Sloan did I get them all right you got it all right yeah thank them for uh, letting me pull you away from them for for this session but uh, they'll be able to listen to it and listen to dad on there and they got a little shout out so thanks again doc I really appreciate it Hey, my pleasure. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. It was fun to kind of go through the journey and hopefully this helps somebody someday. And uh, as far as what you can do for me, I guess, you know, you had pretty successful sons with their hockey careers. So we'll be hitting you up when my son is, uh, you know, a little older. You got it. If they're in the hockey, you know, (laughs) this is the family we want to touch base with. So awesome. You have a good evening. Absolutely. Thanks again, Doc. Hey, thanks, Lance. We'll talk to you later. Well, that concludes another episode of the Hockey Journey Podcast. I can't thank you enough for stopping by and listening. I hope you got something positive from the interview. And if you think there's someone in your circle of family and friends that might like this episode as well, please share it with just one person. It will really help me in growing this hockey community. Again, I appreciate you being here. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, or submit a review. I hope to see you back here soon and do me a favor. Make someone close to you smile today. All the best, my friends.